0: Yes, I'd like to talk to you tonight about volcanoes. And it's a great passion of mine. And uh I'm a professor here at the Earth Science Department and my speciality is anything to do with volcanoes. So I'd like to talk today about the risks and benefits of volcanoes as a natural phenomenon. And there was a children's competition in Italy a few years ago, and uh The children were asked to depict their idea of a volcano. And here's three examples from this competition. And you'll see very quickly that uh, the idea people have about volcanoes can be dramatically different. There can be the palm tree volcano, the erupting volcano, and this must be a very junior geologist who can see inside the volcano. So you get immediately a sense that we all have different perspectives on volcanoes, and I'd like to go through some of them, and uh, I think before I go into details, I'd like to give you a few summary points. What we talk about very frequently in volcano research is the volcano magma system. The volcano itself is just a tiny little cone of the surface. It's like the tip of an iceberg. The The feeding system, the plumbing system that supplies the volcano with magma is going much, much deeper into the Earth's interior, into the mantle of the Earth, and we must think about a large source area from which rock is rising up, and while it rises up, it melts, it forms magma chambers, and there's conduits that feed the magma to the surface, and at the very end, a tiny bit of this magma actually erupts, and that's what we see at the surface. Much of the magma is hidden underground. There is this concept that uh, there is more volcanic eruptions happening as the planet gets older, and uh, this is a tricky thing. <coughs> Here is some uh, curve that I got from a textbook, and uh, oops, this doesn't work so well. So I will explain it. So here's uh, volcanoes active per year, reported volcanic eruptions, and it looks on first glance that the curve is rising up, so this is going to the 1980s, and it appears that there's more volcanic eruptions as uh, the Earth gets older. But I highlighted in red some anomalies there. And it's intriguing, whenever we have big volcanic eruptions, more volcanic eruptions get recorded in the years afterwards because people are alert so there's Krakatau 1883 and in the years after Krakatau people were more aware of volcanic eruptions there's Pele, 1902 and again in the years afterwards more volcanic eruptions were reported <coughs> the striking thing is whenever we as a society have problems less volcanic eruptions are reported <coughs> there we have World War I people had other worries than volcanoes World War II is the same, and, you know, the uh, Black Friday, the uh, financial crash in 1929, it also resulted in less volcanoes being reported. So realistically, we have no evidence that there's more or less volcanoes erupting with time. It's a question of our attention. And here is another diagram. Oh, sorry, no, I just wanted to say it's an artifact, and here's the evidence for this. Here's a diagram of the volcanic eruptions and the intensity of volcanic eruptions from 1780 to about 2000. And as far as we can tell, there's always volcanic eruptions and there will be volcanic eruptions in the future. On average, about 400 volcanoes erupt every year and at any given day in the year, we have about 20 volcanoes being active. So while we speak here, Some volcanoes out there, about 20, are erupting. So what I want to talk about today is some background on volcanoes. We're doing this already. I'd like to talk about direct hazards from volcanoes, also indirect hazards from volcanoes. I hope to have a little break at that point, just to stretch our legs. And then I'd like to talk a little bit about hazard mitigation. How can we prevent disasters from volcanoes? And then I'd like to close on the good sides of volcanoes. Volcanoes have a lot of positive effects for us, for our society, and I think volcanoes get a bad reputation. And uh, I'd like to fix this a little bit tonight. (laughs) So, the first part concentrates on direct effects of volcanic eruptions. We will also talk about indirect uh, effects and the mitigation of volcanoes. Here, some images from Vesuvius in Italy, and uh, I should point out that today the city of Naples has grown all the way to the slopes here, so uh, this picture or this painting goes back to the late 18th century, where the population density was far lower. By now we have 5 million people living in the surroundings of this volcano, so if this would happen today, the consequences would be more severe. Here's some images from Etna and uh, also from Hawaii, and volcanoes, they often pose a direct, an indirect, and a global hazard. I'd like to focus on the first two, the direct and the indirect one, and here I'm giving you some images of direct effects. Here, no parking, obviously, and uh, the other image is from Etna. There's a supermarket, I think, in the background, and the lava flow is advancing. And uh, people, they're trying their best to create little holes so that the lava can flow in and doesn't continue further. They're trying to stop the lava from advancing. It's not always successful, but we humans, we try our best to prevent the damage volcanoes can do. So, direct hazards, um, they are often really in the few kilometers surrounding the volcano... And the death toll from volcanoes is just very heavily on certain parts of the planet. In particular, South America, Asia, and in Europe, we have very few volcano fatalities. Not many people die from volcanoes. And uh, there is also a difference in dangerous and not so dangerous volcanoes. And it goes back to two very eminent Volcanologist, Katia and Maurice Kraft from France, and they decided that there is effectively two simple types. There's black ones and red ones. The black ones are friendly, <laughs> red ones are not. So, if you know what color your volcano has, you have a good idea how dangerous it gets if it's erupting. And here is the classification. The black ones would be Icelandic-type eruptions, Hawaiian-type eruptions, or Strombolian eruptions, and they effectively produce lava. Lava comes out at a relatively low speed. You can walk away from it if you're a fast walker, and uh, the red ones, they are explosive. There we have a lot more energy in the eruption, and it's not so easy to walk away. It would also not be easy to drive away in some of these eruptions because the clouds, <coughs> the erupted clouds, would be so fast they can reach several hundreds of kilometers per hour. So once you're caught up in one of those eruptions, escape is very tricky. So I'd like to start with black volcanoes. These are usually basaltic, as we call them. That means they have low silica content. And the affected areas are restricted to a few kilometers around the volcano, up to maybe 10 or 15 kilometers possible, but usually much less than that. So, Etna is a good example, Iceland I mentioned, Hawaii is another good example, and uh, these occur locally. They can kill people, but it's very unlikely. If people are alert, if they're trained, usually we don't have many fatalities in these cases. They can, however, affect industry, infrastructure, agriculture. So they are damaging to our society as such, and we need to be aware of this. Mount Etna, for example, um, we have frequent eruptions there, and the land that is covered will take approximately 900 to 1,000 years before it will become soil again. So once we have a lava cover... There's no hope for us to grow anything there for quite a long time. And this can be very devastating for local economies. So here's a beautiful little lava image from Hawaii. And I'm going to show you some more images. Here we have more images from Hawaii the no parking, one I've shown before. The left one is lava from the Canary Islands. And the upper one here is from Hawaii as well. And as you see, infrastructure that cannot be moved. That's a problem. So we will lose financial investment if we're not careful about these things. Here's more images from Hawaii. Here's an aerial picture and it shows a lava flow coming from a vent progressing down by quite a bit of distance. And here's some more local images of lava that's erupting. And you see immediately, they come out as little tongues or little, yeah, lobes, if you will. Here's a lava vent from Hawaii. So this is where the lava extrudes. There's a person for scale on your left. And uh, this is quite a large lava uh, vent. And here we have a little bit of a skin on top of it. And here's an outlet. So here it drains into a lava flow that will then run downhill and potentially cause the parking problem I showed you a minute ago. (laughs) Here's a lava lake. And uh, there's a bit of bubbles coming up in the lava lake and therefore we get some small fountains and uh, lava lakes effectively form there's a hole in the ground like a crater and lava flows in and fills it up then uh, this is what we get Uh, a hole filled with lava once this solidifies it makes a crust and often we build these beautiful columns in solidified lava this is what we see here from top you see the polygonal shapes and uh, once this would be cool, and we cut into it we would see many, many pillars of collules, like you might have heard from the giant's causeway so, so this is this mm-hmm. phenomenon from cooling lava. Another type of lava that's less uh, pleasant to work with and less pleasant to walk on is called AA lava, AA is a Polynesian term from Hawaii and it means a very rugged surface. This is what we call a block lava and it moves a bit like a caterpillar. So it moves forward, not like the tongs for the lava I've just shown you, the fluid lava. This is more sticky and uh, yeah, it will affect things in its surrounding. it will burn vegetation and if your house is in the way, then yeah, your house will be affected as well obviously. So here I've given you one of these caterpillars. And this is how the lava moves, like a chain on a caterpillar. It rolls over this lava, and uh, it's not very fast, but once you're in front of it and you cannot move, you have a problem. So uh, this is damaging to non-movable objects. This has been a problem to uh, Europe as well, here's some images from Vesuvius. This goes back to the 18th century and there you see a large lava flow coming down from the actual cone moving down into the agricultural fields on the slope of the volcano and these two houses were I guess lucky but maybe some others were not maybe this one here so I think you get the idea and here's another image of the same thing this is just a different perspective Uh, here we have lava coming down again from Vesuvius (coughs) And it will affect the surrounding of the volcano. So ideally, you don't build too close to a volcano that's erupting very frequently. So here is uh, the situation from Etna. I showed this image earlier. And here is a little uh, tourist center. And uh, I think the lava stopped. it. It did not destroy the tourist center. But it got very close. So here, human efforts are often insignificant because we cannot stop volcanic eruptions. It's just impossible. We can try to divert the lava, we can try to create holes for it to f- flow into, but stopping it, as far as I understand, it's impossible. So, black volcanoes are usually not very dangerous apart for infrastructure, but there is exceptions. You might have heard about the Laki eruption in 1783. That was a long fissure eruption. and You see the uh, vents here on Iceland. And uh, this eruption produced a gas cloud that moved towards Europe. And this caused a lot of fatalities. There was a famine afterwards in Iceland itself, and it's believed that some 27,000 people were dying, not as a direct consequence, but, as an indirect consequence, because the animals didn 't have any grazing material, they got sick from eating the poisoned grass, the people didn 't have any any milk, any meat, and the consequences were severe it 's also affecting the United Kingdom, and in fact, the church records in Storne are pretty clear that the death rate in the years after the eruption was higher than usual, and it 's likely because The poisonous cloud was also depositing fluoride and other elements in those areas. So there's good evidence that these eruptions can be serious and if that would happen today, we would still be affected. Another eruption that some of you might remember from the days, I was only two years old at that time, but uh, there was the Heber eruption on Iceland in 1973 and uh, this was on the island of Westmania, and there a little volcano started to erupt, and it started to fill in the harbor. So here's the vent site, here's the lava flows, here's the, the uh, settlement of Heime, and you see the harbor area. And the Icelandic people were very keen to stop the lava from filling in the harbor, and they brought in the fire brigade to put water on the lava to cool it down. It did have some effect, but some of the harbor entrance got narrower, but it didn't close completely, so it's still usable today. So here's some impressions from the 1973 eruption. There was only one person that died in that eruption, and this was a strange case. It was somebody who got lost, and uh, he felt he needs to get something from a house, but he couldn't find the right place anymore, and eventually... He got into a house and then there was gas in the house. And uh, he must have bent down or so and inhaled too much gas and he didn't get up again. But it was not a direct consequence of the lava. So, these black volcanoes often make shields and the shields can be of different size. There is Icelandic shields, there is the Hawaiian one and there is the biggest volcano we have, at least in our solar system that we're aware of, that's Olympus Mons on Mars, and that's likely of the same type. Olympus Mons is a huge volcano. It's 340 miles across, and uh, it's uh, very tall, and uh, here's an image from it. It's got a surface caldera, and to our knowledge, it's the largest volcano recorded. There may be other ones we haven't seen. We cannot see all the surfaces of all the planets in the solar system, but this one we have observed. So, this is the concept of black volcanoes, and I'd like to close that here. Here's again a little summary. Icelandic, Jambolian, Hawaiian types, and Volcanian ones. And apart from immovable objects, they're not so dangerous. There is one exception again, and that is if the magma gets in contact with water, then it gets (laughs) a big explosion. It's like if you sprinkle water on a hot plate, it might burst out. So this is what happens here. It goes back to the emergence of Surtsey in 1965. There, volcanic vent started to erupt under the water, and it grew larger and larger until it reached the surface. And here, you have water inside the vent and the interaction of magma and water can lead to the <coughs> conversion of water to steam. And when it does so, it will increase in volume. And that's causing the eruption or the explosion. When water gets converted to steam, the volume increase is factor of 1000. And if you have a confined space, this will lead to an explosion. So here's a few impressions from back in 1965. Uh, when the island of Sertzai emerged, and the island is still there. Not all islands that emerge will make it, some of them will be eroded again, but Sertzai is still there, but it's getting smaller every year, and some people say if there's no new eruption, it will be gone in 50 or 100 years. (coughs) So the next topic I'd like to delve in is explosive eruptions, and they are a lot more serious. So, magma contains volatiles, gases, and these gases are usually dissolved. It's like fizzy water, sparkling water in a bottle. As long as it's under pressure, you only see the water from the outside. Once you might shake it a little, and you open it, you depressurize the water. And all the bubbles come out, and if you have shaken it too much, it'll spurt out. It's actually a mini explosion. And that's how it works in volcanoes as well. The gas is very, very important. If you have too much gas in the system, it will drive the volcano towards high explosivity, and uh, if you shake it with earthquakes, it doesn't help, it makes it worse. So here, if your magma has a lot of gas, chances explosive eruptions can happen. And if you have magma that's high in silica content, by the development of magma, it tends to have more gas than basaltic magma that makes the black volcanoes. So these guys... They throw particles up in the air, there they get in contact with air, they oxidize, and they often make red ash. That's why they're called red volcano. (coughs) And uh, these are the dangerous ones. So if we have magma rising up, the gas bubbles will grow and grow, and at some point they will rip the magma into tiny little fragments at this fragmentation level, and this will make small particles and ash. And therefore, we get big eruptions with ash columns and all these kinds of things. So, explosive eruptions work differently to these lava eruptions. Usually, what we call the magma then is high silica or a rhyolitic magma, and the more silica the magma has, usually the bigger the eruptions and the bigger the explosions. So, as I said, this is due to the gas, and high silica also means high viscosity. It means the magma has a high resistance towards flowing. It doesn't want to move. And the gas bubbles will cause it to fragment because they cannot escape. So, this will cause big eruptions. And here is a pyroclastic flow from a rapid volcano in Indonesia. And uh, you see it's large and voluminous and it travels down very, very fast. So, you're in the way of that. It's not a good sign. So, red volcanoes, they are the greatest risk, the greatest direct risk. They cause pyroclastic flows, ash falls. They also sometimes produce lateral blasts, meaning directed surges and blasts to one side of the volcano. And they have often also very negative indirect effects, lahars, mud flows, that is, flooding, and tsunami can happen with this as well. So here we are focused mainly on Indonesia, the Caribbean, and uh, West America, the Andes, and uh, these volcanoes all tend to be more explosive as opposed to, say, Hawaii or Iceland. So the different types of volcanic eruptions, they have different hazard potential, and uh, there is a big contrast. So you want to know whether your volcano is red or black before you move there. Mm-hmm. So, red volcanoes, they would erupt like this. There's Plinian type of the Pliny, who described the, the eruption of Vesuvius in <coughs> 79 AD. There's the Vesuvian type, um, which is also a form of eruption seen at Vesuvius. And there's the Peleian type, going back to the 1902 eruption uh, of Pele in Martinique. And I'm going to run you now through different types of eruptive processes and uh, here I'd like to start with ash fall. This is an image of Mount St. Helens in 1980 and you see the material is pumped out huge amounts of gas and ash are produced there and this is often what we term a plinian eruption, meaning a large column that goes up several kilometers and spreads out and then the ash might fall down and it will cause a blanket of ash. Thicker, close to the volcano, thinner, further away. The ash can be very devastating for humans there's often people who have breathing problems when there's ash fall and of course they will also be very much devastating for a lot of our infrastructure so here's a few more images from 1980 Mount St. Helens so here it looks like that it's a a grey day but it's actually ash in the air and here this is not snow this is volcanic ash on these cars And uh, cars are not really good in these conditions because you need to have air. There's an air filter system in your car and if this clogs up, then your car cannot operate. So, under asphalt conditions, many of our usual tools, our uh, technical aids, are not working particularly well. And uh, here is a quote from Lord Byron, who wrote this down, which was 1815 after the eruption of Tambora in uh, Southeast Asia, and he says, the bright sun was extinguished, Morn came and went, and came and brought no day. If we have too much ash, we're losing the sun, and this of course can be bearable for a short time but if this ash is in the system in the atmosphere for longer it's problematic it can reduce the heating effect from the sun and uh, we get processes like volcanic winters and they are not very good for us so here are a few more impressions from Mount St. Helens this is the ash cloud erupted from the volcano and it affected quite a large area So here, a little bit more, this car down here is still operational, but you see the cloud it produces just from secondary mobilization of the ash, and once we have rain on top of this, the ash becomes mud, and we get mud flow, and they will uh, uh, move downhill, they will fill depressions, and this can also be very disturbing for infrastructure and other activities. Here's a little map of the ash cloud from Mount St. Helens. Mount St. is here on the left at 9.15 in the morning it was uh, affecting maybe an area 100 kilometers away and by afternoon of the same day it moved for hundreds of kilometers all the way down here and all of this area was affected with ash fall but of course closer to the volcano the ash would be thicker than further away. The ash usually forms a blanket, or tetra is another word for volcanic particle, and uh, it forms a blanket, irrespective of topography. We will talk about pyroclastic flows in a minute as well, and they often center towards low ground. They will deposit more material in depressions, while ash often makes a blanket of an entire terrain, and then it might be washed into depressions from secondary processes like rainfall. So pyroclastic flows, they are the real dangerous phenomena at explosive volcanoes. So if you have a red volcano and it's rumbling, this is what you really need to watch out for. The uh, eminent scientists, like you cited earlier, Katria and Maurice Dracht, they died in one of those pyroclastic flows in 1990 at Unzen Volcano in Japan. And this is really the biggest killer in terms of direct volcanic effect. I showed this image before, Merapi, Indonesia. Here is a valley filled from Augustine Volcano in Alaska. And you see some people there on the slope of this valley. And the valley, the lower material there, that's all from the ash fall. Ash, as well as bigger blocks that have been produced by the volcano. So, let me give you a sense of how this looks. This is Pinatubo, 1991. I understand this car did not make it. So here we have Pelé 1902, and uh, this was taken from, uh, by a scientist, Lacroix was his name, and he observed this in August of that year. Um, he came after the city of Saint-Pierre had already been destroyed, so this was one of the later um, pyroclastic flows, it was not the one that devastated the city, and uh, he only observed it from a distance. But this was one of the first images of a real pyroclastic flow. And you get the idea that this is so overwhelming that we have really nothing to put it against. A short word about this eruption, 1902, belay it was one of the eye-opening eruptions of the last century, it was the most devastating one in terms of human life, and uh, people didn't really understand volcanoes to the degree we understand it today people tried to evacuate the um, uh, the city but the mayor um, he instructed people to stay because there was an election coming up and he didn't want people to leave it could have upset the whole system there was a candidate that seemed to get a lot of support which he didn't who he didn't like so he encouraged people to stay instead of leave and uh Even when the ash started to fall, he was still not positive about this. And, uh, yeah, the consequence was that the city of Saint-Pierre down here, only about six kilometers from the volcano away, was completely wiped out. 28,000 people died within minutes. There was one survivor only. He was in prison. (laughs) It's not quite clear whether he was a murderer or not, at least he was accused of being a murderer. He was a thief, actually, I understand, and he got into a quarrel about some loot with some other thief, and one of them died. So he was put into prison in a really bad dungeon cell with very poor ventilation, and that was his lucky strike. So uh, he became a circus star afterwards in America as the man who can withstand the volcano. But I read that apparently he died a poor man, so I don't think he got very happy about the whole thing anyway. <laughs> so, Montana of 1902, it was a beautiful city, the pearl of the lesser Antilles, Warning signals were ignored at the time, the town was wiped out within minutes, a hot surge of ash rushed through the town, it was about 400 degrees hot, we estimate, 28,000 people died almost instantaneously, and another problem was that there was a lot of rum distilleries around the town, and they all started to burn, and a lot of rum was kind of flowing down into the city centre, and rum is not compatible with fire. Uh, in the sense that of course it all flamed up and uh, the city burned for many days afterwards causing extra damage to the infrastructure leaving the city entirely destroyed. So, one of the important eruptions that belongs to this type this pyroclastic type as well as the Mount St. Helens eruption in 1918 I showed in uh, 1918 I showed some images a minute ago for ash form, but it also produced the pyroclastic flow. And here you see Mountain Helens just before the eruption. And what happened really is that the magma pushed against the volcano, the volcano flank became unstable, it was rushing down, and it uncorked the volcano. And as a consequence, the big eruption starts. So here, we're seeing the volcano where this side of the flank of it is just falling down and the first eruptive material is starting to come out. And here, we're seeing the eruption really going strong. And eventually, it led to the big eruption that we all know of. Here is a postcard that I bought in the U.S. a while ago, and uh, there is a drawing of the volcano prior to 1980, and the volcano today, as you see, much of it is gone, and all of this material would have been thrown away by this massive explosion. And there's a new dome growing inside the volcano right now, so the volcano is regrowing, but it will take probably several generations before it reaches its proper size again. The uh, area was evacuated in time, not many casualties, but two volcanologists died, and these are two of the volcano heroes. Um, They were stationed there to observe the volcano, and they didn't get out in time. Here we see a lot of the trees in the area, it's a very forested area, were fallen over, and this, it was damaging for the forestry in the area, but it was good for volcanology, because the trees... They gave us a direction of how the ash moved. And this was very, very useful because it allowed to reconstruct exactly what happened. Here's a map and all of these arrows of how the pyroplastic flow moved comes dominantly from the trees that were fallen over. While it was damaging to the infrastructure, it was a great leap for our understanding of how these things work, and it allows us to make estimates of the direct area that's affected by those eruptions. And as you see, the flank of the volcano that collapsed here gave rise to eruptions in these directions. This side of the volcano was rather safe. So I mentioned there's a new dome growing, and here it is. This is the new dome. It's coming out like toothpaste. And it's very slow growing. It's hot, but... Uh, People can go there. The American geologists have been flying there with a helicopter and trying to get close and take samples and all that. It's possible. And uh, it's a slow process, as I said. It will take many tens of years, if not hundreds of years, until the volcano has reached its firm size. But then, likely, it will erupt again. So the life cycle of a volcano is different to a human life cycle, but they have life cycles after all. Another example I'd like to delve in is Merapi volcano. I mentioned him before, sitting in central Java. Indonesia is uh, spiteful with active volcanoes. It's about 130 of them. <coughs> Each of these little yellow dots is an active volcano. The Merapi sits right here in central Java, next to the city of Jok, Jakarta, with about 3 million people. So here is Merapi on a calm day and uh, several cultural uh, uh, monuments are in the area and uh, many of them were actually abandoned and covered with ash and pyroclastic material and uh, people didn't understand this for a while until we witnessed the 2006 eruption of Merapi and there was a little village called Kaliatem it was about 6 or 7 kilometers away from the volcano and uh, I don't know what this thing is there but well we have to live with it I'm afraid this little box there but anyway here's some impressions from 2006 in uh, Cagliatum village next to Merabi and uh, yeah you get a sense of how little villages can be entirely buried you get a sense of how Pompeii for example in Italy was buried by pyroclastic flows to a point that it was actually forgotten that it ever existed it was only rediscovered in uh, the 19th century that there was actually a town under the ash deposit from these pyroclastic flows so this is a really severe effect and in this particular eruption the village was also evacuated but again two people died and they were geologists that were stationed there to observe the volcano so being a volcanologist at great volcanoes is dangerous so here's a few more impressions, and this is actually the, observa- the observation bunker. So the two volcanologists were in there, and the bunker was covered. So I don't think it was very pleasant in there. They didn't actually get directly affected, but they were indirectly affected. They were buried alive, unfortunately. So these pyroclastic flows they can take different forms. The plain eruption with a high column. Then we have a boil-over situation where it's a bit like a pot of water that boils over, and then we have the blast, uh, this is for example when one side of the volcano gets unstable as we've seen for Mount St. Helens, and uh, these are the main types of explosive eruptive deposits. If you've ever been to the Canary Islands on holiday, on Tenerife for example, you see that these deposits are widespread there, And, as I said earlier, they fill topographic depressions. And here you see a channel or a former valley in the hillside, and it's been completely filled with these light-colored pyroclastic materials, very pumice-rich, and, uh, well, we must assume that life on the island would have been wiped out by these eruptions because they were very large, and indeed there is uh, fossils in some of these deposits. This is the giant canary rat. It was about this size. And it's believed that it is no longer there, it's it's extinct, partly from eruptions and partly because the local Aboriginal people, they like this for dinner. So, the rat isn't existing anymore, but uh, we have fossil bones from it, from these pyroclastic deposits. So, I'd like to talk a little bit about indirect effects. And uh, here, they can be very dramatic as well, and uh, they can cause a lot of disruption and also loss of life. And one of the major phenomena here is mud flows, lahars, that's an Indonesian term, lahars, they form when volcanic material mixes with water, like volcanic ash, it can be rainwater, it can also be meltwater from snow and things like that. And we get these fast moving mud flows. They have the runniness of water, but they have the density of concrete. And if you hit by a wall of water that's got the density of concrete, it will be damaging. So rivers of mud are reported in these situations. The most pronounced example that I'm aware of. The most serious one is Nevada Ruiz in Colombia. And uh, here we had hot ash uh, that mixed with snow and it traveled downhill for about 70 kilometers and there was the city of Amero, and, uh, yeah, this is where the mud flow came down. Here was the city and the city got completely entrenched in this mud causing something like 20,000 people to die and most of the city was severely devastating. Here's some impressions from the city, all drowned in mud. The big drama about the Amero event was that the USGS, the US Geological Survey, had worked there a few years before, and they made a prediction, and they said the area in orange is a danger, and the areas in brown are likely going to be affected by mud flows. and they identified that the city of Amero is right in the middle of this But the mayor of Amero, he wasn't very interested in this. So it didn't didn't fit his overall policies, so he ignored these things. And when the eruption happened, this is the lower map, of course the city got wiped out. So the drama here is that we could have prevented this. But we failed to do so because of other interests. Another example... um, which likely could have not prevented, but uh, this is um, an example from New Zealand. The volcano of Ruapeo had a little eruption, and uh, there was also a little breakage in the crater lake, and the water of the crater lake washed down the hillside and uh, created a mud flow, and the mud flow took out a railway bridge, and a train came. And uh, this was the big express from uh, Auckland to Wellington, and uh, the bridge was gone. And 151 people died. It's a national monument in New Zealand. If you ever get to the North Island of New Zealand, you can visit it. So there is the monument that's reminding people of this disaster. The uh, bridge was actually not very high. But, uh, well, the train could obviously not make it over and here's some impressions of how the situation looked back then. So here's Ruapeo Crater Lake and you can see the water in there and you can get the idea that this can spill over and wash down. Here's an image of Ruapeo from a distance and here is the disaster monument that I visited a few years ago when I had a chance to go there. The... uh, tragic side is that uh, if you look at the rock record, and back in the 1950s people were likely not aware, but if you look at the rock record in the area, there is loads of deposits that come from Lahars, this was my higher car at the time, so for scale, and look at the big boulders and the mud matrix, so the area is affected by these kind of events, and nowadays people know, so they are trying to stay clear of it. Another aspect that I think is important is tsunami. There's different types of tsunami. There's tsunami that come from earthquakes, and there's tsunami that come from volcanic eruptions. And uh, tsunami is a Japanese word, and Japan was very frequently affected by tsunami that come from the Pacific, partly from Hawaii, but also from earthquakes out in the Pacific. And the Fukushima event was a tsunami, likely not by a volcano, but by an earthquake, and uh, it affects these low-lying areas in <coughs> places like Japan. These waves can be very large, and uh, there is not much we can do about them, apart from stay clear of it. And uh, one of the most disastrous tsunami I'm aware of is the one from Krakatau in <coughs> 1883 in the Sunda Strait. And uh, the volcanic eruption wasn't very nice, but the tsunami was really critical. And it's believed that it wiped out something like 300 villages, killing something like 36,000 people. So here is uh, some images from Krakatau. This is Anna Krakatau, the new volcano growing inside the Krakatau complex. And uh, there is this story about this little ship, the Beirut. It was a Dutch ship. It was the Dutch East Indies back then. And it's been reported that the ship has been seen to be picked up by the tsunami and it's been moved for something like almost two kilometers inland. So the power of the tsunami was so big that the whole ship has been moved on the way for several kilometers and was dumped in the jungle. You can still go there today, you will still find a bit of metal I also understand, I I read some article that says that there's a monkey colony now living around this but uh, it's a monument for the enormous force of tsunami waves, so this is something to give you an idea, so if people today are still worried about tsunami, there is good reason for that This is Krakatau in the Sunda Strait, and the dark brown area, these areas here, that was all the areas that were devastated by the tsunami. And here's travel speeds in minutes, uh, in minutes, and uh, within an hour or so, the tsunami was through the Sunda Strait and affected all these areas. And uh, Jakarta, the present-day capital of Indonesia, is sitting here and about two hours or so after the. Uh, big eruption occurred, the wave reached uh, Jakarta and it's been demonstrated in for example the harbor records that the wave arrived and this allows us to calculate the travel speed. So it's a very fast thing. You might have heard about uh, these uh, news that uh, some of the Canary Islands might collapse and produce tsunami. Indeed there has been all sorts of speculations about particularly the island of La Palma that might collapse and produce a huge tsunami. Some people argue this tsunami might be so big that it will travel across the Atlantic all the way to America. It might destroy the eastern seaboard of America. Some people argue it might then bounce back and come towards Europe again. And then Ireland, the UK and Norway might be most seriously affected. Personally, I think that's overdoing it. But, who knows? I would actually go to La Palma in six weeks and I will have a close look at the situation. But the good news is people have realized the danger and the Spanish colleagues have put instruments there, GPS instruments, and they measure exactly whether anything in the volcano is moving. And the good news is that uh, Despite various eruptions, the flank has not moved in the last 20 years. So we understand it is reasonably stable. So here is this flank, this unstable flank, it's this steep part here, and the argument is if this slides into the sea, we will get this big tsunami. La Palma Island had historic eruptions in uh, 1585, in uh, 1677, in 1712, etc., None of them really caused a mega tsunami or this kind of thing. The 1949 eruption produced a crack (coughs) on this hillside and the offset was about 4 meters. And this got people really concerned. But the good news is nothing moved in the 1971 eruption. So we would have expected that if this was a serious problem a new eruption would cause some damage but it didn't. So... Here's some calculations, which some of the geocolleagues did. And uh, I am a bit skeptical. It's a numerical model on a computer, and the computer does what you tell, tell it to do. It doesn't necessarily mean it's real. So here's some estimates. If the island of La Palma collapses and erupts, then the wave might spread out. And here's the predictions they come up with for Florida for example suggesting that the wave after a certain travel time might reach the western seaboard of the USA and cause serious damage there we don't know whether it's true it could be but it could also be that these flanks of big volcanoes come down in small bits and then there is no big wave to be expected so we will have to wait and learn but Let's have a short break now. And I'd say, let's stretch our legs for 10 minutes. I have some material outside if you're interested. And afterwards, I will tell you a little bit about what we do to monitor volcanoes and the good side of volcanoes as well. Thank you. Thank you for your continued interest. And the second part of this evening's uh, uh, presentation will be on hazard mitigation and how we monitor volcanoes. And in addition, I will talk a little bit about the positive sides of volcanoes, because personally I think volcanoes, as most of us as well, have good sides and bad sides, like humans, like most things. And uh, we want to harvest the good sides, we want to stay away from the bad sides. So, here is a postcard I also bought in the US, and uh, this is the city of Seattle. And just in the backdrop of Seattle, some 20-odd kilometers away, is Mount Rainier. (coughs) Mount Rainier is one of the big friends of Mount St. Helens. It's a very similar type of volcano to Mount St. Helens. Mount Rainier can erupt. The uh, colleagues in America have looked at the volcano very carefully, and they argue one side of the volcano is not very stable. It might actually experience a similar fate to Mount St. Helens, 1980. Only Mount St. Helens didn't have any big cities in its near or direct surrounding. This is different from Mount I don't want to even imagine what would be happening in Seattle if this volcano erupts on a large scale and uh, the American colleagues really need to be well prepared for these things and I trust they are and the volcano is extensively monitored for exactly that purpose. There's people watching the volcano every day of the year. So, volcanic hazards and what we can do about it, the mitigation and by the way, we tried to get rid of this black spot very sorry, it's uh, some Some of the the background things in the screen that seem to be broken, there's not much I can do about it, so we have to leave it. But it's obvious that we have no tools to stop volcanoes, so we can only attempt to understand them and stay away from the dangerous episodes of volcanoes. We generally need to monitor volcanoes on a long term because volcanoes have a different life cycle to humans. It's over thousands of years, not over tens of years like our life cycle. So we need to really put effort into monitoring volcanoes and this is often pretty well done in the Western world but because of funding, because of financial aspect it's not as well developed in lesser developed countries. This is part of the reason why there's more fatalities in, for example, third world countries because volcanoes are not that well monitored there. I will give you an example later on. I think scientists are pretty good by now to tell when volcanoes can erupt, but uh, if it's not monitored, we cannot tell. And that's a huge shortcoming. So, we have to go back a little bit, and uh, one of the first volcano observatories that was really in action for a long term was the observatory at Vesuvio. And it was established in 1871. So you can see the building to the top left and Vesuvius in the background. And back in those days, it was effectively a scientist with some binoculars or so, watching the volcano. Whenever there was some activity, he would give alert. Today, we're using a whole array of technical help. And uh, this tells us a lot about the volcano. So in the early days, it was really just watching it and uh, reporting if there was anomalous activity. But for that, to assess whether you have anomalous activity, you need to check what is the normal activity. You need to have a background behavioral check before you can say this is anomalous or this is dangerous. So for this, we need to monitor these things long term. Here's a few impressions of the old building. It's now a museum. It's no longer operational, but I visited a few years ago and you can still go there. Nowadays, everything is in a larger building, which is all computerized, but uh, this makes a nice little excursion on a Sunday afternoon if you're really interested in volcanoes. So, volcano monitoring, it requires professional and systematic work on volcanoes. First of all, what geologists do, they look at the rocks, they map the area, and then they predict what areas are dangerous and what areas are not dangerous. What we also do is we check the seismicity. It's like the pulse of the volcano. Is there earthquakes? Is there more earthquakes than there used to be? Is there less earthquakes? This will tell us something. Is the intensity of earthquakes changing? Another one is the tilt or deformation. Are the flanks of the volcano bulging out or not? We can now measure this with GPS, with satellite instruments, for example, and uh, <clears throat> we know reasonably well whether there's deformation at a flank of a volcano or not. We can also look at the gas flux and whether the chemistry of the gases changes. Often if we have more sulfur coming out with the gas, it's a good chance that there's new magma arriving. And this is giving us an indication. If the gas gets hotter, this is also a good indication that there may be fresh magma in the volcano. Then the temperature in general. I've just talked to uh, someone outside, and the person was saying at Hekla in Iceland, they get a good idea whether the volcano is becoming active due to the water disappearing. And indeed, if it gets hotter, the water will evaporate from crater lakes or rivers close to the volcano, and this can be an indication as well. And uh, then there is all sorts of other effects, like the magnetics will change, the electric resistivity will change, and there are some very old-style methods, like the animals will move away. They're smarter in this concept than most of us. So they know when something is getting unpleasant. They can smell it in the air, and they can feel the shaking of the ground. They're not magic. They're just having senses that uh, are well-tuned in for these phenomena. And uh, once you see animals moving away, like at Merapi, I've seen it once, that when the volcano is active, the monkeys move out, move out of the jungle. So they know this is not pleasant. And uh, so these are all indications we can take to understand volcanoes better. So here's the first example, that's the mapping. And I showed this example uh, a little while ago. This was Amero in um, South America. Nevada del Ruiz erupted 1985. And the mapping was entirely correct. The hazard areas were correctly identified, but it wasn't implemented. So the problem is not just that we can uh, understand uh, that we can find the evidence we also need to create societal structures for implementation of these things otherwise understanding it is not the best use Here a few kind of simple sketches on these other phenomena seismicity the tilt and the gas emission and uh, then also heat flow so we need a team of specialists, of scientists, who monitor these things on a almost 24/7 on a full-time basis, and they must be ready to give alarm. And once there is an alarm, we must have procedures in place. We must know what to do. We must have places where refugees can go, where they will be taken care of. There must be supplies for them. So if you live in a volcanic area, the um, municipalities, they need to have real measures in place to cope with these things. There was um, a big eruption in uh, Indonesia in 2014 Uh, it was on Valentine's Day, this is why I remember it so well and uh, the eruption resulted in uh, the evacuation of 80,000 people within something like two hours. It's a huge logistical task and feet to accomplish this. Some people did die after all, but this was more from accidents on the roads and things like that. So even places like Indonesia in Southeast Asia, which is by no means on our standard in terms of development, they have gone pretty good at evacuations and having these things in place. So this is very important. You need to be prepared. It's not something you can just do. So seismicity. This is measuring earthquakes, the shaking of the ground. And I'm not a seismologist, but uh, here's some old uh, seismometer. And uh, you know this all from movies. Once the needle goes really crazy, then you know there are some big earthquakes happening. And this is what we measure. If your earthquakes get more intense, this is getting more serious. Here is a plot from the USGS. Here's the number of earthquakes per day over a certain period. And uh, here you see, this was in this case March 13th to 22nd, and the number of earthquakes got really crazy here, and that's a good indication that something is not right. That's a good time for thinking about, hmm, maybe we want to evacuate soon. Another thing that people do is uh, measuring of the tilt, of flanks, and you can do this with laser, or nowadays we can do it with uh, satellites. You don't have to actually go there anymore. So the volcano tends to grow bigger, tends to bulge out once we have an impeding eruption, and it often sinks down in itself a little bit once the eruption has stopped. So you can actually start to get a feeling for when the eruption might get less strong once the flanks are moving in again. And as I said, these days we're doing this with radar measures. So this is a technology uh, called radar interferometry. And here, the satellite that flies over a certain place, like a volcano, takes images every so often. And once you overlay them, then you get these interferograms, and they tell you how much deformation you have. So here is change in millimeters, and uh, you will find that certain areas deform more strongly than others. And if this reaches a certain threshold, you can give alert, and you can start to evacuate. Monitoring of uh, gas and temperature is very important. This is uh, in Indonesia at Papandayan Volcano. I have a piece of sulfur outside. This is from this place. And in this particular case, the fumarole that was uh, giving off gas here was 211 degrees hot. And if you (coughs) go there every day and measure this, and you would find that, oh, now it's 350, the next day it's 400 that would give you a serious indication that something is happening there. This is from the peak of Merapi volcano, also in Indonesia, and uh, here we start the gas in quite an elaborate effort, and then once you have the gas in a little container, you can bring it to the laboratory and analyze it, and if you do this once a month or so, you will get a baseline, and if you have any variations on the baseline, that's a good indication that something might be happening at the volcano sooner or later. You can do this not just on the volcano. You can also do this in uh, water, in streams or lakes, in the surrounding of volcano. There is a volcano that erupted 12,000 years ago in Germany, in the Eiffel region. And uh, we still have CO2 bubbles in the crater lakes. And that means there's still magma somewhere at depth. And uh, if you want, you can analyze this. So this gentleman here is taking water from a little well, and uh, he's going to analyze it for chemistry, and if the chemistry is changing over time, that's a good indication that something is not right. Down here, we have now measurements with uh, airplanes or drones, you can fly over volcanoes, and here's the flight path in kilometers, and uh, here's the crater of a volcano, and there the sulfur emissions are particularly strong, and the CO2 as well and (coughs) further from the volcano, it goes away. So nowadays, with erupting volcanoes, we don't go there. For example, we have remote instruments, making the whole business a lot more safe. And uh, we more and more fall back on remote sensing. In this case here from Merapi in Indonesia, there's some radar or satellite uh, measurements and there we see that in the crater area suddenly there were anomalies in this case on the 28th of April in 2006. That's the 2006 eruption which I mentioned before and the different colors give different temperatures and uh, here indeed the idea is that the temperature is starting to increase in the crater area and that's a good indication that something might be happening. Here's another example, Mayon in the Philippines also from 2006 and uh, here again this is radar data and you see the anomaly the heat anomalies they are recorded in the crater area in the summit area of the volcano and uh, once this happens you get an idea that this volcano might be preparing for a large eruption we can also track ash clouds I'm sure remember the Eyjafjallajökull eruption in 2010 that uh, was responsible for the closure of much of northern Europe's airspace. I was with 30 students in France (coughs) and I was completely stuck because they also had a railway strike at the same time. So uh, I remember the adventure of trying to get back and uh, we managed but with a substantial delay. But uh, people... Scientists have gone a lot better, this is Etna in Italy in 2001, and here you see an ash cloud, it's transported by the wind, you also see some lava flows, and you can actually get an idea of where this ash might be traveling to, and this might be useful if you have people downwind here with respiratory problems, they can prepare. they can start to move out of the area, they can start to close their windows or put their gas masks on and things like that. So preparation is the key aspect here. We need to be ready for these events. and We need to be able to say what exactly might be happening. Here's an example of an ash cloud that's been traveling. This was um, from the Spore volcano in Alaska. It's not a particularly well-known volcano. It's very remote. It's the red dot in the top left. And this ash cloud was traveling, and it was swirling around with the winds, And it ended up somewhere in northern Canada, Low population density, no big problem. But in these areas down here, in the northern US for example, or southern Canada, these areas, they were more seriously affected. There, you might need to warn people over radio and television that ash clouds or gas clouds are coming. And uh, what we often find is that it affects the most vulnerable of the society. It affects people who are either particularly young or particularly old and often have breathing problems. And uh, there we find that these situations actually increase the death toll of those cases in, quite, in some areas quite dramatically in case of active eruptions. I said earlier that we have reason for hope. And uh, scientists are getting better at predicting volcanic eruptions. So, Mount St. Helens had a rather not so well-known eruption two years after the big 1980 eruption. And the 1980 eruption was a bit of an embarrassment for the uh, American Geological Survey because they didn't fully understand all the things that were going on, so they put enormous effort into understanding volcanoes. And the 1982 eruption is so little known because nothing bad happened. And Here, we have seismicity, and sorry the yellow curve is blocked out by this black bar, but you get the idea. And uh, here we have the dates, this was in March of that year, and uh, up to about the 19th of um, March, when the eruption occurred, people were able to see, all the seismicity was increasing. The dome expansion was also increasing. Tilting of the flanks was increasing. And right after the eruption, the flanks went down again. As I said earlier, they rise and go down. So immediately after the eruption, the flanks were subsiding a little, and sulfur emission was also very strong, and it was increasing. And indeed, because of all these phenomena pointing towards an active eruption, the eruption was successfully predicted. The eruption was predicted within Uh, a short while of it actually happening, everybody was evacuated in the area, no fatalities, and uh, nothing really happened. So, the good news is we can predict eruptions, provided that we monitor with sufficient detail, with efficient equipment, and with the right manpower. This is not cheap, this is very expensive, but it can be done. And this means Cool, there's hope. There's hope in areas that have high population density around volcanoes, and uh, there's a good reason why many countries, like Indonesia, have particularly high population density close to volcanoes. It's because the soil is very good. Agriculture is very good there. People have more harvests close to volcanoes than further away. So it's attractive for people to go there. That's why we need to understand how volcanoes operate. now I'd like to come to the last part of my presentation, and that is the good size of volcanoes. Volcanoes are not all bad. And when I was a little boy, I remember that my mom told me about volcano eruptions in Italy. And I went to bed and I was really worried and said, will I be affected? Will the lava come? And my mom said, no, 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 no. There's huge mountains in between. The lava cannot come over. So. I I, I grew up in this belief that volcanoes are dangerous and bad, but it's not entirely so. There is, as I just said, volcanic ash that is harmful when erupted, but it's very good for agriculture. Volcanic ash has a lot of nutrients, and it allows to grow a lot of things. Let me stress, over 70% of coffee is grown on volcanic soil. So if you drink your cup of coffee tomorrow morning, you may think of this. Most of it has grown on volcanic material. Then, volcanic geothermal energy is very important. We are getting better at harvesting this, and this is relatively clean energy. Uh, The Indonesians are starting huge projects now to try to harvest this, to become less reliant on fossil fuels. Um, New Zealand is very good at this. Iceland is very good at this. In fact, believe it or not, Iceland has the highest banana production in Europe. You wouldn't think of Iceland being a place for growing bananas, but in the greenhouses that are heated by geothermal energy, this is where it's possible. So, volcanic rocks are also very good for building. We have a long tradition of using volcanic materials to create buildings and I'll show some examples in a minute and not to forget, many of our ore deposits, many of our metals come from volcanoes and uh, With a little bit of pride, I'm going to tell you now that I got an email yesterday saying that I got an article accepted in a very prestigious uh, journal. And uh, the article is about Kiruna. And uh, I'm proposing in this article that Kiruna has formed under a volcano. And the article will now be published. So, I believe, and maybe there's other opinions out there as well, but I believe there was a big Kiruna volcano a long time ago here in Sweden. And it produced the ore that is now so vital for Sweden's economy. So, they have also an added benefit because, as Mr. Darwin said, volcanoes produce the most beautiful scenery in the world. (laughs) So, there is also an uplifting aspect to this. And I'll talk about some of these examples now in the last part of my presentation. So, you probably know about this. Obsidian, and I have a sample outside, has been one of the main and first tools for humans in order to make arrowheads, spearheads, because once it breaks, it's very sharp. And there's a lot of surgeons today that still prefer obsidian blades to metal blades because they're sharper. So, in societies without metal, this was the way to create cutting tools, and humans have been very good in exploiting this. So, without volcanic eruptions, This would not have been possible. So we must be aware that taking the skin of a bear or so requires a cutting tool. And we wouldn't have been able to settle in areas where it's particularly cold without having these tools. So we must realize that we have only expanded over the planet to the degree we see today because of being able to exploit these resources. Another aspect that I think is very important is exploration. Volcanoes have been vital for navigation. One of the key examples here is Taylor volcano in Tenerife. And this is a Dutch drawing from 17-something. I forgot exactly what the year is. Of course, the volcano is exaggerated. It's much bigger on this drawing than it really is, relative to the little ship here. Um, But it was such a big volcano that the seafarers were seeing it in distance. It allowed them to navigate their way towards the south of Africa, or later on also to the south of America. And here's a few more impressions of Pico de Tete and all the ships in the surrounding of Tenerife, which was a major port area back then for the trade with the Americas, for example. I mentioned this before: agriculture, volcanic soil is really, really good. At Mount Merapi in Indonesia, people close to the volcano have three harvests a year. Further away from the volcano, they only have two harvests. It's that dramatic. So going close to the volcano is attractive. And uh, this is tobacco plants. It's very good for tobacco growth. I stopped smoking several years ago, but I still uh, still like this picture because you see the tobacco plants. And... uh, Nowadays, people use tobacco not just for smoking, they uh, make medication of it, and it's good for medical treatments, for skin and all that. So tobacco will still be grown there for a long time, I'm sure, and uh, volcanic soil is especially good for it, as it is for coffee. This is coffee beans, also from Indonesia, and uh, many of the big coffee plantations are within volcanic craters or on the flanks of volcanoes. Volcanic soil is particularly good for coffee. So I think I mentioned it, 75%, about 75% of coffee is actually grown on volcanic soil. Hmm. Building material. We have been building with volcanic rock for a long time. Here's some classic examples. This is from Germany, this is from France. And uh, particularly pumice type rock, which has a lot of bubbles. It's very light, we can easily work it. You can chisel it very easily. It's very insulating because of the bubbles and it makes a beautiful building material. So volcanic rocks have been used for a long time, but we also find that basalt was used, for example, as cobblestone in the streets because it's very durable. Pumice wouldn't be very good for this, but basalt is very good for this. So we have been using volcanic rocks for building purposes for a long while. Here's some more impressions from France in this case. So this is from Clermont um, in uh, the southeast of France, and here is an old castle that is also in the area of Clermont, and all of these materials, oh sorry, all of these buildings were built from volcanic material in the area. I mentioned ores, and indeed many of our ores go back to volcanic phenomena. We have uh, copper Gold, silver, lead, diamonds come from volcanic rocks as well. Most of our iron comes there. Phosphorus, we can mine sulfur there. And uh, many of them have volcanic origin. So, Sweden is the number one producer for iron within the European Union. And as I just tried to convince you, I think most of the iron in Sweden comes from volcanoes. So. Here's just a few more impressions. Here's some sulfite deposits uh, in a volcanic situation, in this case from China. And uh, here we have a sulfur mine in Indonesia. And uh, both places i visited over the last few years. So we really must accept that many of our resources have a volcanic origin. I mentioned geothermal energy. And uh, here is uh, a picture of the Wairaki power plant in uh, New Zealand. In the North Island of New Zealand and uh, there's other ones in Indonesia, in New Zealand etc and here we can harvest the steam as well as the heat and it's used for district heating. It's also used for creating electricity and here's a little idea of how such a power plant works. We often pump water close to the magma reservoir. The water gets heated up like in a steam engine and then it drives a turbine higher up and we can make electricity Uh, One problem though, the volcanic vapor, the steam, it contains little particles and they start to crystallize. And this is a pipe from Vairaki, and after using the pipe for however long, the pipes clog up, they close. So they have to be replaced. So you have to financially invest into this in order to make it work. But, as I said, it causes Iceland to be the biggest banana producer in Europe. So the energy in Iceland is very cheap, and this is because of the volcanoes delivering it. You just have to learn how to harvest it. Here's an interesting phenomenon. This is a volcanic crater in the Cape Verde Islands. This is a little island republic of uh, Africa. And uh, here in the Cape Verde (coughs) Islands, uh, this volcanic crater is exploited to make salt. It's close to the coast and the rim of the crater is between the volcanic crater and the ocean, and they dug a big tunnel between the ocean and the crater. And via this lever system, they can open and shut it. So they can have seawater coming in, and then they shut it, and then they just let the seawater evaporate until they have salt. And once the salt is moved out, they open the shutter again, water comes in, and they close it again. So. It's a huge salt production there. And uh, here's a few more impressions from this Salinas that I visited a few years ago. And you get the idea, you can do this in little lagoons like this as well. But with this volcanic crater, we have this large area. And it's producing most of the salt used in the Cape Verde Republic, to my understanding. So very economically useful little situation. So. There is some potential uses of volcanoes that, personally, I would not recommend. And uh, Mm -hmm. people have often asked, would it be possible to combat global warming by triggering volcanoes? I mentioned volcanic winters earlier, so there can be a cooling effect after large volcanic (laughs) eruptions. So, we could cool the Earth by (laughs) creating more volcanic eruptions, so (laughs) some people (laughs) argue. Personally, I'm skeptical. Volcanoes are complicated beasts and once we start volcanic eruptions artificially, I don't think we have the means to stop them. And uh, also, we don't really understand the climate so well, so we don't fully understand volcanoes, so messing around with systems where we're not really on top of things, I'm not a big fan, but it's been discussed. And in theory, it might help. But we might need a few more hundred years to really be on top of this game. There has also been a speculation now whether we can prevent volcanic eruptions by drilling into volcanoes and letting them cool out more quickly. To be honest, I don't want to be a drill worker and an active <laughs> volcano and <laughs> drill a hole in there. So I think it's very dangerous. So to my understanding, in my mind. At the moment, we should stay away from those things until we understand more. But, it's fun to discuss these aspects. So, the last point uh, I'd like to talk to you about is culture and society. Volcanoes have always been very impressive to mankind. I mentioned earlier that as a little boy I was worried about lava coming from Italy and uh, my mom explained to me that Italy is far away. So. Uh, I was calmed down, but if you live close to volcanoes, it will leave an impact on you. If the volcano is friendly, people often give it a father kind of figure or image, like Father de- Tate, as people call Tate volcano on Tenerife, because it hasn't erupted in many hundred years. If a volcano erupts very frequently, People usually consider it more dangerous and then there's legends of devils living inside the volcano, like Merapi volcano in Indonesia. There people have realized it's not a friendly volcano, so you better associate it with something negative, so new generations will immediately realize that the volcano has dangers. So, this has led to all sorts of beliefs and legends, and uh, you might have heard about um, Pele, she the goddess of volcanoes in Hawaii. And if your house is affected by a lava flow, well, Pele is, is apparently not happy with you. And uh, this is a picture from the 1960s. You can tell by the glasses, I think. And uh, this was a fissure eruption. And here was a depression. And the lava was flowing into the depression, making a lava lake. So here it became a tourist attraction. People were able to go close enough. And in order to calm the volcano, the tradition has evolved that local people throw gin bottles into the eruptive crater. Apparently Pele likes gin and it calms (laughs) her down. I don't know if it works, but (laughs) these are beliefs that are happening. I've seen similar things in Indonesia that people throw food or money even into volcanic craters in order to calm the gods inside the volcano down. Here, um, some impression from Merapi again, there's very rich culture, very high population density around some of these volcanoes. The volcanoes are even on some of the banknotes. And uh, here, uh, a newspaper clipping from Java. Here, the fire dance. Javanese villagers attempt to appease the volcano by doing a magic dance. There was this person who inspired all of these dancers. Um, He was the guardian of Merapi volcano, and he tried to calm everybody down, saying Merapi is a friend, Merapi is not dangerous. He died in 2010 in a volcanic eruption. (laughs) So uh, it's not that easy, this concept. And uh, while um, uh, while we revere volcanoes, I don't think these methods are really all that useful. Volcanoes have also been uh, considered uh, magic places or even the seats of gods like sacred Mount Fuji here in some uh, watercolors or paintings from Japan and people still hike up to Mount Fuji, some even bare feet I understand and it's believed to be a spiritual journey when you go up the volcano and uh, here's another image of uh, Fuji, it's one of the nicest volcanic cones in the world. It's almost perfectly shaped. It's very impressive. And a friend of mine gave me this as a present a few months ago, and it's outside. If you'd like to have a look, it's a fan with Mount Fuji in the middle. So it really impresses that people in the surrounding of volcanoes really live with a volcano and take it in. If you like, Japanese art. Here's Hokusai, one of the uh, people who invented cartoons, so to speak. And uh, he had a whole series of volcano images going from the various angles at Mount Fuji and showing it. And he was also the person who drew the big tsunami. And, of course, people in Japan have not only seen good days on volcanoes, they've also seen bad days. And uh, this is also depicted in art. Here's a big volcanic eruption. I can't read Japanese, but I don't think it sounds good. So uh, from that point of view, this is a warning, an ancient warning about volcanic eruptions, if you will. It's like the leaflet of volcanic ash, which I had out there. This is not just true for Southeast Asia. This is also true for, for Europe. Here is an old map from, uh, about Iceland. It's a Dutch map, and it goes back to, I think, the 1580s. And you see Hekla volcano here, just over here, erupting. And because Iceland is a magic, spooky place with loads of eruptions, they put all these creatures there, all these very dangerous creatures, to show that you're approaching the entrance of hell if you even go there. So this is very, very telling, I think. I personally believe that uh, volcanoes are also reflected in the Edda, the big uh, legends Um, that have been summarized round about the year 1000 in Iceland. And uh, here there was a big eruption in Iceland, a fissure eruption that lasted several years. And it was probably in the year 934 AD. This was about 60 years after the first wave of settlements that is recorded in Iceland. And intriguingly, after this first wave, settlements slowed down. And we can speculate that the big eruption had a part to play. Mm -hmm. Iceland was becoming less attractive for settlers when they hear stories about big eruptions. So in the Edda, where these uh, stories about the Aesir gods are all recorded, there's also this concept of the end of days, Ragnarok. And uh, there it says in the Edda, there will be a winter with the greatest frost and keen winds. and The sun will do no good. There will be three of these. And indeed, it's said that after the Elkia eruption, there was three years of bad, devastating weather. So there is potentially a link. And it goes further. In the end, it also says, the sun will turn black, and the land will sink into the sea. The brightest stars will vanish from the skies. Fire will rage forth, and the flames will lick heaven itself. Boulders will slam together so big that trolls will tumble. And man will tread the path to hell. I think it's a perfect description of a big volcanic eruption. And uh, I believe some of the inspiration for the end of days has come from volcanoes. And you might say, oh, this was just the fantasy of somebody who had too much uh, ale. But uh, there's another chronicle here from northern Germany, the Saxon Chronicle which says that in the years just before the death of King Heinrich, uh, which was actually 936, many signs occur. The mountains of the north are said to have erupted flames in many places, and the brightness of the sun itself seems to have diminished. So we have independence reference for these events around about the time of the Elgir eruption. This was my Iceland example, and in Italy, there is a religious connotation about eruptions as well. Here you see various drawings, uh, religious drawings, um, with volcanoes in the background. I guess it's the hope that uh, religious or the belief to higher uh, beings can help the volcano to calm down. And uh, here, this is very interesting, these are some pressed, medallions from 1873, thir- uh, thanks to my colleague Francis here, who supplied this image. And here you see, I guess it's the Pope at the time, and here is uh, St. Mary. And uh, these were pressed into liquid lava. So during the eruption, people would go there with their stamps and they made these things, these medallions from liquid lava, beautiful <laughs> souvenirs. And here's another image from this kids' competition right from the beginning of my presentation and this indicated leaves, believes that volcanoes have all sorts of nasty creatures underneath that really feed the eruptions. I don't know if this is true, but um, um, this is Vesuvius today in an image and here's some historical images of Vesuvius. Vesuvius has a new volcano forming inside an older crater and uh, this is what you see here. So this is the new cone And this is the old crater. And I'd like to kind of show you a little bit of Vesuvius through the ages uh, for the next few minutes. I should point out that it's been a very important place for volcanology as well as for European culture for various reasons. So here's another religious aspect. This artist here has uh, tried to calm the volcano down with, with praying, I guess. I'm not sure it worked, but it's what people do, they associate higher powers very frequently with volcanoes. We all heard of Pompeii, some of you might have visited it. Pompeii was completely covered with a big ash blanket and uh, pyroclastic flow deposits in uh, 79 AD and uh, it was excavated and you can go there nowadays, it's spectacular and this is an artist's impression of the event, Vesuvius erupting, covering the city of Pompeii. One of the good things about this is that we actually have a unique insight into the life of the Romans, into the early civilizations of Europe that we wouldn't have without a volcanic eruption. It just wouldn't be there anymore. So, here is the ash and pumice deposits of Pompeii and here's a little fiat for scale. It's a big, big, massive layer. And uh, here's an old Roman road in Pompeii itself. And here you see the eruptive material. They've only partly excavated it. Here's two colleagues from Italy. And uh, you see this was completely covered. So nothing left. Indeed, as I said, the place was actually forgotten. People had no idea anymore that it existed. So the monitoring there goes back a long time. Here, 1684, we have an eruption at the We have the young crater to <coughs> the right, the old crater to the left. And believe it or not, you have surely heard about Spartacus, the uh, gladiator who became a rebel. Mm-hmm. He was trying to hide with his little army from the Romans. And he was hiding right in between these two areas. He was hiding in the volcanic crater. And the Roman army was scared they didn't. So this is why he went there. This was one of his strongest tactical moves and allowed him to actually keep his rebellion up for quite a while. So here's another image, a little younger, uh, 1755. And uh, these are beautiful drawings. You can see that now science is starting to creep in. There's little labels, Alpha and D and C. And uh, there's a description of the processes that are happening there. Here's another one, again, there's labels there, one, two, three. So people were starting to be more observational rather than just being in awe about the volcanoes. They were starting to realize there's systematic changes that people can understand. So here another image, 1754. Here another one, 1776. Here a few more oil paintings from uh, the 17th and 18th century. Here the lava is starting to uh, (coughs) affect the agricultural land. I showed this image earlier. This one as well. And here another one. People are starting to flock there and find the eruptions very spectacular. Now, here, color comes in, this is 1834, 1944, this was one of the last eruptions, or the last eruption at Vesuvius, it actually just happened when the Americans occupied uh, Naples, a few days after they went in, the eruption happened, so they had to deal with enemy soldiers and eruptions at the same time. And this is a more modern picture, um, uh, sorry, this is a uh, hundred years old, over hundred years old but you see that uh, the population density is increasing and in modern times it has increased even more. The city is really up to the flanks. It's one of the heaviest population densities in Europe and it sits right next to a rather dangerous volcano but Vesuvius has become a tourist attraction already in the 1890s. There was a little cable car going up, but it was destroyed in one of the later eruptions. So today you have to walk up there. So, and here is uh, an image again from the children's contest. And uh, here you see Vesuvius, the uh, different cones, the young cone and the older one. And this person was very worried that the fragments, the fiery fragments will spill all the way over the volcano and I think it is partly realistic. Pompeii, I mentioned it before, it has uh, a huge impact on our understanding of Roman life, how the civilization in Europe evolved and although these people suffered dreadfully and I feel terribly affected when I see these images, we must also realize that we have learned so much. There is a Roman McDonald's. This was a little kind of kitchen area where you could just walk in and have a food and uh, these things. So we really have gained enormous understanding of how life worked back then. In addition to these things, volcanoes have of course inspired all sorts of thinkers. And uh, here we have Jules Verne, who wrote this journey to the center of the earth, and he entered the center of the Earth pathway at Circle on Iceland, and he came out from Stromboli. So the story would imply that he traveled all the way into the Earth and came out somewhere else, and that there's a connection of all volcanoes inside the planet. I'm not sure this is true, but the idea is very nice. One of the first volcano movies I watched as a little boy was this. Oaks. <coughs> Krakatoa, east of Java, and uh, this is a movie from the 1950s. Well, sadly, they haven't done their homework, because Krakatoa is actually west of Java. But, anyway, um, it's a a catastrophe movie, and um, it had big sales back in the 50s and 60s, uh, in the 60s, I believe. But, uh, I watched it again a little while ago, and I didn't like it so much anymore. (laughs) There's more modern movies like Dante's Peak, maybe you've seen it. And uh, there's also Volcano, what would happen if a volcano erupts under Los Angeles? Well, it would be a big disaster, I appreciate that. You have some Hollywood actors like, um, um, oh, I forgot his name, Tommy Lee Jones or whatever. And, um, uh, of course, they make it very attractive and uh, in these movies, people drive through lava fields and all sorts of things. You have to be a bit skeptical. But maybe you enjoy a volcano meal to go with it at the same time. So, volcanoes sell to this day. And uh, just for Sophie, I made a slide. My my ten-year-old daughter is here today. Just for Sophie, I made a slide this morning. And that is uh, Disney movies. They employ volcanoes as well. Maybe you've seen this Vaiana movie. It's about a Polynesian girl and uh, her helper here. And uh, they are exploring The islands in the Pacific, and uh, they are facing Jakar, the lava monster. And uh, Jakar is uh, a very dangerous kind of creature, and uh, it makes these islands. And once the islands are made, they become green, like the impression up there. So, what I like about this movie is that it really encapsulates the two sides of volcanoes. There's the construction. And the construction isn't always pleasant. And then there's the destruction, which we think of as a nice thing. But what actually happens is once you have a green island, erosion has started. The deconstruction of an island has started. So, what the movie partly implies is that the good comes with the bad, and the bad comes with the good. And this is my true philosophy about volcanoes. So A few last slides before we close, and that is that uh, volcanoes still are very attractive for all sorts of uh, advertisement. You can have crocatoa body scrub, you can have uh, sharp pepper, and uh, all these things. This image up there is one of the first advertisements for olive oil, and uh, you see that Vesuvius stars in the olive oil advertisement. So uh, this is. Very, very strongly um, pronounced still today. There's even a rock and roll band called Krakatoa. I don't think they're very good, but uh, I don't know. But uh, yeah, you see, they're trying to capitalize on the concept of volcanoes. Volcanoes are still a major intellectual inspiration for us and of course a major challenge to understand. So here I'd like to close. I'd like to say... Thank you for your attention. It's been a great pleasure.